Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed civic participant, activist, and believer. In this episode, we talk about Donald Trump getting COVID-19, reflect on the first and only vice presidential debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence, the plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, and the birthday of one of my sheroes, Fannie Lou Hamer. Now, on to my favorite part of the podcast because I get to hear directly from you, the listener, the reviews. We are at 365 reviews up from 358 last episode. I really appreciate you taking the time to write thoughtful and insightful reviews. And in case you missed the last episode, I have a co-host now, Christina. Welcome again. And let's dive into the reviews. Thank you, Jamar. Thanks for having me again. This first review is from Patricia T18, titled The News Recap We Need. There's a lot that I appreciate about this podcast and the ongoing efforts of Jamar Tisby. When I tune in, I know that I'm not listening to someone's ratings, driven clickbait, hot take. Rather, I am being informed, educated, and even challenged. I am receiving current events and important news from a critical perspective and the array of topics are discussed with a nuance that is too often lacking in the public forum. I am also thrilled about the newest edition of Christina Button, and as a Black Christian woman, I'm always grateful for spaces like this that exist. Woohoo! Yes, we had to read that one because, Patricia, you nailed it. Uh, Christina coming onto the show has increased the level of excellence of this exponentially. So thank you for that, uh, Patricia. And I think we have another one. Is that right? Yes, Jamar. And thank you, Patricia, for that review. That's so kind of you. This next review is from Spirulina Sabrina. (laughs) Uh, The impact of Jamar and this podcast. This podcast hosted by the seasoned and calculated Jamar Tisby is just what the doctor ordered. We need this thoughtful and honest commentary dealing with Christian nationalism, gaslighting, and straw man argument from the evangelical community was making me want to pull my hair out. We need more leaders like Mr. Tisby interested in the kingdom of God, not this cultural idolatry running rampant. Not much gets by Jamar and he doesn't back down, which are some reasons why I admire him. We have one of the realest cats in the game. Tell everybody to tune in. Thank you, my brother. (laughs) <laughs> Any reflections on that, Jamar? <laughs> Seasoned and calculated. I don't know if I've right. uh, heard those adjectives before. I love it. I receive <laughs> it. And honestly, I do hope that this podcast, Footnotes, is sort of a breath of fresh air amidst some of the other commentary purporting to come from a Christian uh, perspective. Um, I think there's room for lots of different perspectives, but sometimes uh, one side can get kind of overwhelming. So I hope to, I mean, I definitely have my viewpoints and angles, but hope to present it at least fairly in a way that that people can hear. And I know that's your heart as well, Christina. So really appreciate that, Miss Sabrina, uh, for your reviews. And if you have not yet left a review, join the 365 other people who have already done so. Um, Just a couple more announcements. Quick, shameless plug. My next book, How to Fight Racism, is coming out in January. Unfortunately, you're going to hear me talk about it a lot leading up to it. One of the reasons is because pre-order sales are really, really important. 
So I was blessed to have my first book, The Color of Compromise, hit the New York Times bestseller list. But that was an unusual circumstance because it came a year and a half after the book first came out due to the resurgence in interest in uh, racial awareness because of these protests and uprisings that happened in the summer of 2020. We can't ever plan for that, obviously. And the best way to make sure that a book has a good reach is through pre-orders. So uh, the book is available on most outlets for pre-order. I know it's available on Amazon. Uh, if you prefer to go through a local bookstore, an independent bookstore, I'm sure you can reach out to them and just uh, tell them about the book. It should be available to bookstores anywhere you go. So I would love for you to pre-order it. I would love for you also to plan now for a study group in your church or some other community that you're part of that you can plan on for the spring. This is a great uh, book to, to sort of read through in community and one that's great to read through in community during something like Black History Month in February. So those are some ways that you can plan ahead. And of course, we'll have opportunities for you to join the launch team, not quite yet, but probably around November. And then lastly, on my first book, The Color of Compromise, please, if you've read it, if you've benefited from it, and you haven't left a review, please do so. Goodreads, Amazon, wherever you leave reviews, all of that is super helpful. And the last announcement is just a reminder. This is Christina's second episode on Footnotes. She has come alongside. She's already been a part of it from the launch in uh, mid-2019. And she has done so much of the legwork and the homework and the research to get us good data and information to get all the facts here. And so she's going to be doing that on air now, basically. So uh, every headline that, that we talk about, she has done all of the background work on. She's going to introduce the topic. Then she'll kick it to me for commentary. But of course, we value you for your brain and your insights too, Christina. So if there's ever a point where you want to jump in, uh, we would love to hear from you. So I just wanted to remind our listeners of that. And uh, Christina, do you have anything to add? Thank you so much, Jamar. I'm so glad to be here. Um, it's been such a busy week, uh, hard to stay on top of just the ever-changing news cycle um, just by the hour. Um, so let's dive in. President Donald J. Trump announced from his Twitter account that he has tested positive with coronavirus on October 2nd, 2020 along with his wife, Melania. I want to highlight a timeline of events. The news of his diagnosis was just a day after our nation's in-person presidential debate between former Vice President Joe Biden. He was later flown that day to Walter Reed Medical Center due to mild symptoms of COVID-19. On October the 3rd, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows reports that Trump's condition took a turn for the worse the day before, on October 2nd, when his blood oxygen levels dropped rapidly. Later in the day, on October 3rd, Trump releases a video from Walter Reed in which he shares that he's feeling much better. On October the 4th, Trump takes an unnecessary risk and leaves his hospital room for a joyride to wave at supporters. Trump stated that he was bored in the hospital, according to his advisors, and wanted to show strength. On October 5th, three days after arriving at Walter Reed, Trump is released from the hospital. 
During this time of Trump announcing his diagnosis, over a dozen in his inner circle have also tested positive with COVID-19. You can note from the timeline of his activity that the swift turnaround and release from the hospital, his physical interaction with others, especially during the joy rise, shows a complete disregard for those who have to go the extra mile to protect themselves. We've seen COVID-19 hit black and brown communities the hardest over the last several months. We may even have known people personally who have wrestled with getting good health care, who will probably more than likely be indebted for years to come with the hospital bills related to their own personal diagnosis. And we have our president who has the greatest access to the best drugs. He has the best access to the best doctors. And the thing that stood out the most to me is that he was bored. His show of strength would be one thing if he was attempting to remain hopeful, but that has been again overshadowed by his minimization and lack of concern for not only his staff, but also his supporters. He was released from the hospital three days after his announcement, and within the hour of arriving back at the White House, he released what appeared to be almost a PR video of his arrival at the White House where he stated that COVID-19 was nothing to be concerned about. In another clip of him arriving back at the White House, you could clearly see he was struggling, almost gasping for air. And so much more has happened with him since his arrival back at the White House. He's been on Twitter, sort of going through this rant about Hillary Clinton's emails, Obamagate. He was interviewed on Fox Business yesterday as he referred to the vice presidential debate where he called Senator Kamala Harris a monster. He's refused to participate in a virtual upcoming debate with former Vice President Joe Biden. He shut down any former former talks about a stimulus relief bill until he is elected. Jamar, are you able to make any sense of the chaos? Any thoughts on his, uh, you know, display of strength and just this posture that he's you know, displaying to the American people as we have so many American lives lost uh, due to COVID. Well, as usual, there's a lot to unpack here. Number one is just the way the president handled his diagnosis. Uh, As you mentioned, Mm -hmm. doing everything you're not supposed to do when you are diagnosed with a potentially deadly virus. Mm -hmm. And so uh, things like... Basically, who who knows what the conversation was, but he was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center. And on the third day, three days later, he uh, goes back to the White House, which is a bit uh, misleading because the White House has a very extensive medical setup Mm -hmm. in and of itself. So he's basically Mm -hmm. going from one hospital that's fully decked out to another hospital that might be a little Mm -hmm. less decked out, but still getting top notch, round the clock care that only a president or the very, very rich could ever count on. Of course, the way he then frames it is then, hey, it's no big deal. In one of the interviews, his first interview after it, he says, you catch it, you get over it, and then you can't get it again. When there's good evidence that people do catch the virus again, even after having had it once. But even still, as you mentioned, downplaying it, downplaying the seriousness of it, is potentially lethal to people mm-hmm. uh, who, who refuse to take it as seriously as you need to. So that's one level. On another level, 
what people immediately noticed was that this is a self-inflicted wound. And I wrestled with this mm-hmm. language here because I, I, you know, on one hand, you could say he's a, a victim of his own policies, but victimization applies a degree of, you know, this, this happened to you through sort of no fault of your own. But that's not exactly the case here, is it? Um, President Trump flouted the medical community, the scientific community, all the data He's going to rallies and telling people not to wear masks, uh, making fun of Joe Biden for wearing a mask, uh, has very loose protocols, even in the White House, where the top level um, elected officials and uh, administration is. And so it's a self-inflicted wound because he knew he had access to all of the wisdom, all of the information to keep himself and others around him as safe as possible, but he refused to do so. This, So this, then, is what he gets for his own policies. It's self-inflicted. And then, of course, um, at another level, it's really interesting how this entire episode, which we're not through yet, it demonstrates mm-hmm. Trump and those who follow him, it demonstrates their ideas of masculinity, of mm-hmm. strength, of courage. I am reminded constantly of the excellent book, Jesus and John Wayne, by Kristen Cobes Dumay, Jesus and John Wayne. And it is an analysis of sort of evangelical masculinity with uh, John Wayne as a sort of figurehead representing so much of it, uh, this rugged individual, rugged individuality, Americanism, mm-hmm. pro-America stuff, guns and physical brute strength, white, of course, right? And then reading this book, Jesus and John Wayne, is one of those things where the thesis, you know, you know a thesis is good when you see it and then you can't unsee it. A thesis is good when you see it and then you see its application or reverberations all over the place. And so this is one of those books where you can see these really regressive ideas of masculinity playing out. And the reality is Trump has painted himself into a corner. Because he has portrayed himself as essentially the pinnacle of humanity. That's where he calls himself a very stable genius, right? So he has this unassailable intelligence and ability to solve problems. He's painted himself as the great deal maker, right? He wrote a book called The Art of the Deal and uh, campaigned in 2015 and 2016 on his ability to make deals and get things done. And in terms of his physical health, has painted himself as this perfect physical specimen. Uh, this person who, even at the age of 74, is in not just great physical health, perfect physical health. And so then what does it do when you catch a potentially deadly virus? What does it do to that image when you are seen gasping for air in one of your videos and heard coughing on one of your interviews just days after this diagnosis, right? Now, this sort of impermeable, untouchable demigod is all of a sudden humanized. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in terms of Trump's Mm -hmm. response, the erratic tweets, the erratic interviews, all of that, you know, Mm -hmm. has happened before. But I think he's, I think um, it's even heightened now because he's trying to maintain 
this image of right. invulnerability, which of course never mm-hmm. works because we're yeah. human. And now mm-hmm. he has no choice but to to try to minimize uh, the the debilitating nature of this. We haven't heard much about Melania um, at all. It's all right. about Trump and him trying right. to restore this image of invulnerability. So those were my observations. But in overall, his reaction has not been the kind of humbling experience one would expect mm-hmm. from most people after having this brush with illness and death. Uh, it has been a doubling down on this unfounded bravado that is so problematic in so many ways. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, it's the lack of fruit for me. Um, you know, he lacks any sort of self-control. He's been impulsive with his words about what he wants to do or doesn't want to do uh, and not considering um, other people still. You know, we have another upcoming presidential debate and it was just announced a few days ago that they were going to have it virtual. And, you know, he's in protest on uh, Fox Business saying it's a waste of time to uh, do a debate on video, not even considering like, hey, you have COVID and you placing yourself and others at risk um, by, you know, having sort of a a tantrum almost of not wanting to do it on video. So how he's postured his health, as you said, is as, as we have, you know, the American people are struggling with this. And, and as I also heard him say, you know, he's young uh, on Fox business uh, saying he's 73. And that's the reason why, um, well, I, I was saying he was 73, but uh, he said that he's young and he he's in the perfect health. And that's the reason why he's recovered. And there have been so many people impacted by this. And it's just been truly disheartening to watch. So who watched the vice presidential debate this past Thursday? This past Thursday, we saw way more civility and way more decorum, but it did not lack its problems. There were a few moments that the two dodged answering certain questions, yet during the course of the debate, Pence consistently stayed on the defensive and lacked accepting any sort of accountability to some very pressing issues. One being about COVID. Senator Kamala Harris confronted front and center that the White House response has been the biggest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country, and stating that Trump and Pence have forfeited their right to re-election. Pence pivoted right, citing that Obama administration's response to the less-than-lethal swine flu. In addition to COVID, the issue of the Supreme Court justice was brought to our attention, where, where Pence stated, and I quote, are you going to pack the court? unquote. They touched on the economy and also college education where Senator Harris stated, and I quote, for folks who want to go to a two-year community college, it will be free. If you come from a family that makes less than $125,000, you'll go to a public university for free, end quote. They touched on environmental issues where Penn stated that our water is among the cleanest in the world. They touched on health care and abortion and they finally touched on the murder of Breonna Taylor. 
Brianna was murdered while sleeping in her home as officers executed a no-knock search warrant. Senator Harris expressed deep sympathy in the fact that she had been in conversations with Brianna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer. In addition to her answer, she commented on the murder of George Floyd. And a quick side note, the officer who murdered George Floyd was just released on $1 million bond this week. And when the question was posed to Pence on whether justice was served in the murder of Breonna Taylor, he responded that he had trust in our justice system and not charging any of the officers. His response drew swift backlash publicly. Breonna Taylor alive today. That's what justice would look like, wrote Representative Ayanna Priestley. The same sentiments were echoed by the University of California at Berkeley professor and former Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich. Another response about the comments regarding Breonna Taylor during the debate. Thank you, Kamala Harris, for standing up for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and everyone else who's been victimized by police brutality, wrote civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who is representing both Taylor and Floyd families. We are fighting together for equal justice under the law. This is the time for leadership. We must always fight. Um, Jamar, is there anything that was mentioned during the debate that you feel um, hinges upon the outcome of the election, whether there was something mentioned that would feel it would sway one way or the other? And just your overall thoughts on your take of the vice, vice presidential debate. Well, it was an interesting question that you posed at the very beginning, and you were like, well, did anyone watch the debates? And what's so funny <laughs> is that uh, Tyler Burns, my co-host on Pass the Mic, he was like, I, I texted him, I was like, what did you think of that debate? He's like, I didn't watch a second of it. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. Um, yeah. Certainly after the first presidential debate between Biden and Trump, mm -hmm. Mike, goodness, what a disaster that was, mainly because right. it wasn't a debate. It was uh, Trump mm -hmm. shouting over Joe Biden almost the entire time, the moderator not mm -hmm. having any control or ability to, to rein him in. And so I think a lot of people, understandably, and including myself, were very turned off by that. Nobody's eager to listen to that kind of a presentation again. Um, but we were subjected to something very different with this vice presidential debate. Number one, people are paying closer attention to it because for each of these vice presidents, Kamala Harris and Mike Pence, their running mate for president is in their 70s. And Joe Biden, if he gets elected, I believe he would be the oldest president elected mm -hmm. in our nation's history. And so all of that leads people to speculate that these vice presidents could in short order, become president if anything were to happen to these uh, older gentlemen in their 70s uh, due to health concerns. So I think people were paying close attention to that. It was also a very different tone, of course, than the, the presidential debate. You had two people who were talking at, a, at, a, at an inside voice, as we say, you know, to, to kids. Um, mm -hmm. But that's what was really insidious, right? Okay, so there's a lot of things going on here. Um, Pence saying, I trust our justice system. My goodness. Mm -hmm. My goodness. Mm -hmm. I like, I wanted to tweet, like, uh, I did tweet that quote. Um, but I wanted to add like stares in Brianna Taylor, you know, stares right, yeah. in George Floyd, mm -hmm. right? Like you don't even have mm -hmm. to go 
far back in history. I could give you decades of examples, right. but you can mm-hmm. just look at 2020 and see why mm-hmm. that is such not only a, a sort of off-base statement, a, a really offensive statement in a lot of ways, especially to black people. And then I think the most chilling part as far as question and answer or questions and non-answers were about the peaceful transfer of power. So at one point, the moderator asked Pence regarding Trump's comments that he wouldn't go peacefully, um, what Pence thought of that. And he gave what he did throughout the entire debate, which was a non-answer slash a a deflection, a pivot to another talking point that he did want to talk about. And, and the fact that that question even needs to be asked mm-hmm. should stop us all in our tracks. And mm-hmm. beyond that, <laughs> should motivate us to vote for someone different if they're not even going to follow the, right. the, the longstanding policy and law about the peaceful transfer of power, which has differentiated the United States politically from so many other nations that when it does come time, for a new leader. We have a peaceful process in place to ensure that happens. And this current president is undermining it with the co-signing of the VP, which brings me to my next point, which is that in some ways, Pence is a more dangerous version of Trump. Mm-hmm. Because while Trump will steamroll and be an elephant in a China shop kind of a, a leader, if you want to call him that, Pence is not going to raise his voice. Pence will use different words that aren't as triggering for people. But he'll be parroting the same sort of policies, right? That's how that's how he's vice president. So he's co-signed everything the president has done. That's how he's remained in the good graces of a volatile mm. personality like yep. Trump. And yep. he will do it in such a way that it comes off as not as threatening. And that I am very fearful will lull people into a false sense of security when in reality, when you look at what he's promoting, what he stands for, what he stands against, you're just getting um, a a Midwestern mild-mannered version of what we've already gotten and somebody who's got the discipline and the patience to enact these policies in a way that President Trump does not. So we have to be very careful of that. And that, that whole vibe, right? Like one, one part of the vibe was the patriarchy, the misogyny, the mm-hmm. misogynoir with a, a black biracial woman uh, sitting across from him because he kept interrupting her and he kept mm-hmm. going over time. That was more the more the thing. He does that that he went over time, had no regard for the rules. The moderator was a woman. His um, debate opponent was a woman. And as a man, he just did what he wanted. And I saw a lot of women commenting on that, which I'd love to get your thoughts on, too, Christina. Um, you know, at watching this as a woman, as a black woman, as a voter. Um, what did you think of that sort of exchange and interaction? Um, so there was a quote um, from Bernice King that says, women leaders have to navigate so much misogyny and patriarchy. Black women leaders even more so. It's truly unfortunate and unjust. Hashtag VP debate. Um, yeah, I've been in a lot of conversations over the last few days with 
some of my sister groups of just uh, just just the conversation of knowing what we already know, knowing of the restraint that Senator Harris had to go through in almost fighting for her time to speak, you know, in moments of, you know, being in white evangelical spaces, you, for me personally, um, there's been moments where um, I've felt silence or been silenced. And so there was definitely an element that resonated with me as I watched her kind of fight for her time. And um, I think that spoke a lot to your tweet uh, that you tweeted uh, saying, what does it say that so many people see white evangelical pastor when they look at and listen to Mike Pence? And um, I had those vibes about him prior to this, but it just was more apparent and reiterated um, as I watched that debate. So, so yeah. Yeah, that that tweet I put out got a lot of interaction and interesting reactions. So as you said, I, I, I put out, what does it say that so many people see, see, quote, white evangelical pastor when they look at and mm-hmm. listen to Mike Pence? And I, I put that out for a couple of reasons. One, I was seeing as I was following along on Twitter, because that's kind of the running commentary during these debates, there were a lot mm-hmm. of people who were making that connection, like, oh, he reminds mm-hmm. me of a, a white evangelical mm-hmm. pastor, or mm-hmm. I, I know exactly the kind of gaslighting uh, that uh, yeah. Kamala Harris is going through because my pastor did that to me. So, you know, it mm-hmm. affects um, comments to that effect. And so I was just reflecting like, wow, this is really interesting. And so I just posed mm-hmm. the question, like, what does it say that, that so many people are making that same connection? And there were a lot of responses. There were some defensive responses, like, why would you, you know, make that association? There's a lot of different beliefs among, you know, white evangelical pastors, or I am a white evangelical pastor and he doesn't represent me, you know, those kind of things. But there was also a lot of resonance with people. Uh, There was one person who said, "Um, I've been thinking that since 2016. I thought everybody thought that. Um, There was another who said, I've been saying it for years. I don't know, maybe because he's a white folk champion. Mm-hmm. And uh, another said, it says that white evangelicals have sold out to the culture. Ironically, the conservative evangelical mantra of rejecting the liberal mistake of compromising with the culture has become their default mode. They are the culturally compromised religious community. So those were, you know, you can go to my Twitter feed at Jamar Tisby and scroll through uh, the comments there just to get really a diversity of responses. But I think for me, the answer is, why does he remind so many people of a white evangelical pastor is because he wears his evangelicalism on his sleeve. And it's a very mm-hmm. particular kind of evangelicalism, mm-hmm. one that we would associate yeah. predominantly with white people, though not exclusively, one that is mm-hmm. comfortable co-signing the Trump administration, mm-hmm. which comes with all kinds of, I mean, you can look at anything, right? Uh, you can look at the refusal to give a full-throated condemnation of white supremacy, which we'll talk more about mm-hmm. in a moment. You can look at the uh, immigration policy and family separation and detention of children. You can look at uh, the fact that, that um, the number of refugees that, that the United States has allowed in during this administration has absolutely plummeted compared to previous administrations, both Democratic and Republican. And so um, it is an evangelicalism 
it's the 81%, right? You remember the 81% in exit polls um, of those who voted pulling the lever for Trump, uh, who were white evangelicals, right? And so this is the kind of evangelicalism that Pence represents and his sort of soft-spoken, milquetoast demeanor, which has often been seen as a liability, was actually kind of an asset um, in the shadow of the first presidential debate where Trump was just so off the wall and erratic. Well, here's this calm, folksy voice espousing these, you know, phrases and cultural tropes that white evangelicals are going to be familiar with. And uh, it was a, it's a bit jarring, honestly, a bit yeah. unnerving uh, that, that so many people made that connection and that there is a form of Christianity that really mm-hmm. not only doesn't have any objections to the current occupant of the White House and what he stands for, what he's promoted, but is actually comfortable with it and in some ways promotes it as well. So there could be a lot of answers. Why does this man remind folks of a white evangelical pastor? But those are a few. That's really helpful, Jamar. The FBI has thwarted a plot by militia members to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Their six people are facing federal charges. This next story, folks, I just wanted to quote and highlight a section from an NPR article that will be included in the show notes that discusses the situation further. Quote, the FBI says it has thwarted a plot by militia members to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and six people are facing federal charges. In a coordinated move, Michigan is pursuing state felony charges against seven people with ties to a militia called the Wolverine Watchmen. In a statement earlier Thursday, Whitmer said two militia groups were preparing to kidnap and possibly kill me. But in a later interview on NPR All Things Considered, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nezel said that multiple white supremacy groups and militia groups have been acting in accordance with one another. Whitmer thanked law enforcement officers on Thursday afternoon for foiling the alleged conspiracy. I'll be honest, she said. I never could have imagined anything like this. Michigan has been a hot spot for disagreements over the shutdowns and other restrictions. Whitmer ordered to try to show, slow the spread of the coronavirus, actions that allegedly sparked the plot against her. The governor noted those disagreements on Thursday and called for unity. Criticizing President Trump's recent remarks on white supremacists, Whitmer said his widely condemned stand back and stand by comment about the Proud Boys was taken by hate groups as a rallying cry, not a rebuke. Yesterday on Twitter, President Trump responded to Governor Whitmer by stating she locked down her state for everyone except her husband's boating activities. The federal government provided tremendous help to the great people of Michigan. My Justice Department and federal law enforcement announced today they foiled a dangerous plot against the, whip, the against the governor of Michigan. Rather than say thank you, she calls me a white supremacist. While Biden and Democrats refused to condemn Antifa, anarchists, looters, and mobs that burned down Democrat-run cities. Jamar, this is super concerning. Um, do you think the President Trump recognizes the impact of his words? inciting people to stand back and stand by? I mean, 
I'm still trying to wrap my mind around a credible plot to kidnap a U.S. governor. Like, I know. It's no longer a conspiracy. It's no longer, you know, something that's being conspired. It's real and it's in your face. It was in motion. And like, I know we are desensitized after almost four years of this president and his administration, but but can we pause here and acknowledge how egregious this is, how beyond the pale this is, how, how utterly uh, inconceivable this should be that one of our governors, one of 50 of the highest uh, uh, elected officials in, in each state had a, had a Mm -hmm. plot against her for had, had law enforcement not acted. She might be kidnapped right now. It could be facing death. Like that is mm-hmm. absolutely just jaw dropping, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I hope we don't lose our shock factor, our ability mm-hmm. to be shocked right. at the depths of depravity um, that some people mm-hmm. have sunk to. And to your question, yeah, the word, the president's words and actions have a whole lot to do with this. And mm-hmm. does he know the impact of it? In a sense, yes. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, because mm-hmm. on multiple occasions he has refused to to outright denounce white supremacy right. and white supremacists and militia groups such as this. Right, so you can go all the way back mm-hmm. to Charlottesville and the so-called Unite the Right rally, where he, you know, in his response he's saying there are very good people on both sides, and even the last presidential debate just a couple of weeks ago, where one of the most memorable moments and infamous moments of that debate was when the moderator directly asked him to denounce white supremacy and he wouldn't do it. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think he knows who his base is and I think he knows how to speak to them. And I think he knows that he doesn't want to alienate them uh, by making Mm -hmm. statements or declarations uh, that, 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 that might put them off. So in that sense he does, but yeah. You know, the question is, does he care about the consequences? And, and the answer to that right. seems to be no. So one of my professors yeah. in grad school once said, words create the context for action. Mm. And I never forgot that because it's so true. And what's so interesting is the is the 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 conversation in which he stated that we were talking about um, plantation owners in South America and how they essentially created their own little kingdoms and were autocratic dictators within their own plantations, right? And so um, he was talking about, you know, the way they did that and their words in connection to that. And it's very apropos, I think, for a president who seems to want to style himself as an authoritarian dictator. So Mm -hmm. his words, both what he says and what he doesn't say, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. create the context for this. Now, granted, you know, these mentalities and these groups are already out there, but it's one thing for them to exist and be on the margins of society. It's another for the president of the United States to essentially give them free reign. Mm-hmm. And even if he hasn't said those explicit words, it's all the other things that he's not saying. It's all the opportunities he had he's had to denounce such groups and his refusal right. to do it or his tiptoeing around what should be a very mm-hmm. clear issue uh, both politically and morally that's that's doing this and so 
it's chilling. And we've said this, like, for me, mm-hmm. this was one of the biggest objections in 2015 after he announced his candidacy is that we heard these, not even dog whistles, right? These megaphones mm. to these mm-hmm. groups um, that are very violent and dangerous. And so I'm very thankful that the plot was foiled. I do right. not, however, expect this to be the last one. And my final word yeah. on this is that white supremacists are the greatest domestic terrorist threat mm-hmm. in our country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I need us to realize that. No matter how certain individuals or news outlets try to paint other people as extremists, whether, quote, black identity extremists or mm-hmm. Muslim extremists or whatever group it might be, the greatest domestic terror threat is from white supremacists. And until we realize that, not just realize it, but acknowledge it and take action mm-hmm. against it, um, mm-hmm. We were fortunate this time that the plot mm-hmm. was stopped before it went into motion, before it was actually executed. But we may not be so fortunate in the future if we don't take this threat seriously right now. This past Tuesday, we commemorated Miss Fannie Lou Hamer's birthday on October the 6th. How reflective and appropriate with this being just a month shy away from the election day and all that she fought for. A Christian political activist, I shared an Instagram post about her with a clip from a 1963 recording titled, We'll Never Turn Back, sponsored by Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and was produced by Harvey Richards. Here's what I share on my Instagram post. Born Fannie Lou Townsend into a Mississippi sharecropping family, Fannie Lou Hamer spent much of her early life in the cotton fields. She became involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1962, through which she led voting drives and relief efforts. In 1964, she co-founded and ran for Congress as a member of the Mississippi Freedom Democrat Party, drawing national attention to their calls at the year's Democratic Convention. Hamer continued her activism through declining health until her death in 1977. In the summer of 1962, Hamer made a life-changing decision to attend a local meeting held by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who encouraged African Americans to register to vote. On August 31st, 1962, she traveled with 17 others to the county courthouse in Indianola to accomplish this goal. They encountered opposition from local and state law enforcement along the way. Only Hamer and one other person were allowed to fill out applications. Such bravery came at a high price for Hamer. She was fired from her job and driven from the plantation she called home for nearly two decades just for registering to vote. But these actions only solidify Hamer's resolve to help other African-Americans get the right to vote. According to the New York Times, she said, they kicked me off the plantation. They set me free. It's the best thing that could have happened. Jamar, anybody who knows you knows that Fannie Lou Hamer is one of your favorite historical figures and people of great faith. I love to hear how you commemorate Fannie's memory on her birthday. Thank you. Thank you for that good recap you hit 
kind of all of the the major uh, public high points of her life. So when I first moved down to the Delta from the Midwest, I had a vague name recognition of Fannie Lou Hamer, but I didn't really know her significance, what she was about, why she was important. Um, very quickly, though, I, I came to learn more about her, and there was just something so compelling and powerful mm -hmm. to actually be in the Delta where she was born and raised as I was learning about her. Because I'm telling y'all, look, I've said this before, if you ever do post-pandemic some sort of Southern civil rights or, or racial history tour, you've got to come to the Delta. I mean, there's just, there's, it's, mm -hmm. there's the South, but there's, then there's the Delta, right? There's yeah. just a different yeah. kind of world. Um, but with connections to the broader nation as well. Anyway, to, 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 to see the cotton fields where she mm -hmm. picked cotton from the age of six, to visit Ruleville, uh, where she spent much of her life, and go to the memorial park dedicated to her, knowing that it was local folks, black folks, who scraped mm -hmm. together the money to, to do this and do this well, as opposed to you know some mm -hmm. of the bigger national monuments and memorials. Mm. that have much more support, uh, especially from white people and, and money, um, to, to know some of Mississippi's politics, both then and now, and to, to realize what she was up against. Wow, what a woman mm -hmm. of immense courage. But not only that, she was one of the most forthright activists when it came to her faith. So many people remember her for her singing, her powerful singing. And of course, she would mm -hmm. sing gospel songs and church songs that she knew. Uh, she was never uh, ashamed to name the name of Christ or to say that what she was doing was because of her faith. And I think this is so important, uh, especially as a student of history. I think what happens is people on both the left and the right can appropriate the legacy of activists like mm -hmm. Fannie Lou Hamer in um, ways that truncate her, her full scope. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. on the left, people tend to appropriate Fannie Lou Hamer's radical democracy. So she was part of forming the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was a direct challenge to the all-white um, Mississippi delegation. Uh, uh, and, and these Democrats are Dixiecrats. They're Southern Dems who um, would be more akin to the modern Republican Party. So don't let the names trip you up. And so um, mm -hmm. she formed this biracial coalition and they did this dramatic uh, attempt to earn their own seats at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. It was ultimately not successful in the ways they would have wanted, but the, the ways that she thought about democracy um, were really radical and revolutionary. And um, folks on uh, further on the left of the ideological spectrum like to appropriate that legacy without giving due credence to her faith and her Christianity. On the right-hand side, it's sort of the flip of that. They want to um, appropriate her as a Christian, but then don't actually look at how radical her views were when it came to race, um, voting, and economics. So my burden as I commemorate Fannie Lou Hamer every year is mostly on social media and spreading awareness about mm -hmm. her because there's, we can't pay too much attention to her in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, is to make sure she is not bifurcated into 
an activist or a Christian, but that they are wedded together, which is the way she lived her life. And uh, I think she has a very sophisticated political theology, even though she wasn't formally educated past about third grade. I think she has an extremely sophisticated uh, approach to change and activism. And she has this embodied testimony as a poor black Southern woman. She has a sort of lived experience that gives authenticity mm -hmm. to her faith and her activism uh, that we cannot ignore. So she is one of my heroes, my sheroes. She is one of the people I look to most frequently as an example for how to work for justice um, while maintaining a strong faith and how to put one's faith into action. And we can never separate those two, her faith and her actions. So um, happy birthday, Miss Fannie Lou Hamer. We thank you for your lifetime of work and your legacy of faith and activism. That's it for this week, folks. Remember to support The Witness Foundation. Visit thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co, and help us to identify, equip, and fund the next generation of Black Christian justice advocates. Remember to like my author page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash jamartisby1, facebook.com forward slash jamartisby, and the number one. I'm also on Instagram, at jamartisby, and Twitter, at Jamar Tisby. And thanks to my co-host, Christina Button. You can follow her at Black Women Plant Seeds on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, you can contact us via email at footnotespod1 at gmail.com. That's footnotespod in the number one at gmail.com. Thanks to our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Footnotes.